Cases of stolen, mistaken and fraudulent identity were not an entirely uncommon thing in Victorian Britain. Somewhat more unusual was the bizarre allegation that an English aristocrat, the fifth Duke of Portland, had lived a double life and eventually faked his own death in order to escape the web of lies that he had concocted over the years. This all sounded very far-fetched, but when interested parties attempted to bring the case to court, they found themselves cut off by shadowy powers that led to some deciding that the whole affair was akin to a mysterious conspiracy. In truth, it very well may have been, but perhaps not for the reasons that the prosecutors originally claimed. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Dark History Season 8, Episode 4. I'm Ben, your host, and today we have got a belter of a story. The, the, I think the podcast, we kicked this season off, it's been quite dark so far, so I thought we'd kind of, I wouldn't say live, lighten it up, but I thought we'd go with a story that was a little bit more mystery, a little bit more kind of Victorian conspiracy, probably a little bit less uh, sort of baby murdering and a little bit more kind of for the mystery folks. Uh, but yeah, it's an absolutely fascinating story, so let's crack on. This episode is called The Druce Portland Affair, The Duke That Never Was. Notable for its famous occupants, Highgate Cemetery in the Camden Borough of North London opened in 1839, after the parish churchyards throughout central London grew so overcrowded that they were deemed to be a hazard to the health of the city's ever-expanding population. Built as one of seven cemeteries that popped up around the edges of central London between 1833 and 1841, Highgate quickly became a fashionable place for a Victorian burial, and thanks to the era's trend towards the Gothic, its 37 acres of sprawling woodland soon became filled with elaborate tombs, vaults and statues to honour the dead occupants. An extension was opened in 1855, and by the end of the century, the two areas were acting as the final resting place for over 100,000 of the city's souls, with notable residents as diverse as Karl Marx, George Eliot and Michael Faraday. By 1864, the rows of stone vaults, angelic statues, crosses and pillared tomb entrances were slowly expanding out across the picturesque hillside. 31st of December was another bitterly cold winter day in North London. That December had seen storms and snowfall across the country, though the low sun that hung over the hillside seemed to be paving the way for what would be a slightly warmer few days to kick off the new year. The stillness was broken on the Sunday of New Year's Eve when a funeral procession rolled through the large iron gate of the cemetery as two carts, each pulled by four horses with large plumes tied to their heads and led by a dozen men. In the back of one of the carts lay a fine elm coffin, the convoy wound their way through the tree-lined pathways up the hillside of the original western site of Highgate, eventually pulling to a stop next to the tall pillar that sat atop the Druce tomb. The funeral taking place was for an eminent London businessman named Thomas Charles Druce, and was, despite his wishes, a fairly grand affair. Thomas Charles Druce's life had been an impressive climb, Though where from, no one was ever totally sure. The old man had never liked to talk about his origins, and somewhat strangely, the records were equally as quiet. When he arrived in London in 1830, he had taken a job as a salesman for an Oxford Street furniture dealer known as Mr Munns. The relatively unspectacular position was all well and good as a starting place, but Druce had larger ambitions, and so two years later, he left the dealers and took a position at the Baker Street Bazaar, the bazaar had started life as a market square turned cavalry barracks that had been reopened in 1822 by politician John Maberly as a horse bazaar that soon expanded into the sales of carriages and saddlery before reopening again in 1826 as a general retail market and one of London's original prototype department stores. At one end of the stores, a Londoner could buy anything from music to glassware, millinery to makeup whilst men spent their leisure time in the reading rooms and the ladies of the town could peruse the wares in the fancy bazaar or relax in the refreshment rooms. It was at once entertainment and shopping, all under one roof, and as such, exhibitions were a common feature, 
with the Baker Street Bazaar, the original home of the Madame Tussauds Waxworks, which moved in three years after Thomas Charles Drews took his lowly position as salesman. Over the following 15 years, Drews worked his way up the ladder, eventually becoming partner in 1850, a position that could allow him to confidently believe that he had well and truly made it. It had been an uncommon rise, but for a Victorian gentleman, Druce was anything but common anyway. He rarely drank, he didn't smoke, and for a man of his means, he ate relatively plain food, preferring simple fish or chicken, and he never travelled. At least, he didn't travel outside of London. Within London, he travelled quite a lot. Every two years, he moved house, never settling into one home, despite having been married in 1851. Even his marriage was uncommon, however. Thomas Charles Druce had met his wife, Annie May, in the early 1840s, and the couple had had three children, two sons, Herbert and Sidney, and a daughter, Florence, long before they were married. This was an act that more or less ostracised them from polite society. Eventually, the family, with their by now six children, did seem to settle down in 1861, when they remained at a large, arch-windowed mansion in Mill Hill, in northwest London for three years, maintaining a full household of staff before Thomas's death three years later on the 28th of December 1864. Despite Thomas Charles Druce being such a prominent London businessman and his funeral being of relatively grand appearance, his death seemed to pass quietly enough. No newspapers wrote of the service and no obituaries waxed lyrical about his rise to money and power. He did, for all intents and purposes, disappear from public view overnight. That would not last forever, however, and almost 40 years after his death, his name would be plastered across newspapers around the globe. Following the funeral, however, the Drews fault in Highgate Cemetery lay quiet, undisturbed by little more than the cry of a fox or rattle of a horse carriage passing by on its way to inter a new tenant to the ground. Thomas Charles Druce may have been well off by the time of his death, but 15 years after his funeral, there was another funeral taking place in Kensal Green Cemetery in Kensington, London, for a man of a wholly different class. Given its understated ceremony, one would have been forgiven for not realising that it was a member of the landed gentry being buried. William John Cavendish Scott Bentinck, the 5th Duke of Portland, had passed away at his London residence of Harcourt House on the 6th of December, 1879. Just like Thomas Charles Druce, there was little about the Duke that made him common, even aside from his social class. Born in London, the second son of the fourth Duke of Portland, William Bentinck, the Duke, more casually known as Lord John Bentinck at the time, was homeschooled in London with his eight brothers and sisters, before joining the Grenadier Guards in 1818, where he rose to the rank of captain, before inheriting the title of the Marquis of Titchfield following his older brother's death in 1824. There were rumours at the time that William was somehow involved, with witnesses at the inquest mentioning seeing a man that matched William's description at the scene at the time of the death, but nothing was ever officially concluded concerning that matter. Along with his brother's title, he also inherited his position as Member of Parliament that saw William begrudgingly dabble in politics for two years before he passed the role on to his uncle in 1826, which allowed him to rejoin the army, though this time it was only in an inactive role, which he stayed in for a following 12 years. Romance never really came easy to the Marquis, and when he fell in love with the opera singer Adelaide Kemble, he became a borderline stalker, hanging around theatres after her performances in hopes to speak with her and having hundreds of portraits painted of her, until that was that she rejected him squarely, which, given his behaviour, was perhaps not altogether surprising. After his father's death in 1854, William inherited the full title, becoming the fifth Duke of Portland, along with vast swathes of the London property and the Nottinghamshire estates of Welbeck Abbey. He also obtained his father's seat in the House of Lords. By now, the Duke had, for a long time, been considered as somewhat fragile. His days in the armed forces had seen him suffer from lethargy and delicate health, but an accident in 1851 that found his head under the wheels of a horse carriage seemed to have a lasting effect. The new duke appeared to many to slip into the role of something of a hypochondriac, and by 1864 he was well and truly on his way to living a hermit lifestyle, walled up in Harcourt House, London, 
where he was shielded from the outside world by large stone walls. It was around this time that rumours began popping up around the Duke. He was apparently suffering from some kind of skin complaint, either smallpox or eczema, which had led him to avoid sunlight and social contact. It also seems the Duke's eccentricities began growing. He ate only plain chicken, day in, day out, and had all of his clothes made to order. This was not unusual, however, the Duke didn't only get them made by size, but also by weight. This was so that everything was always exactly the same. At times, he would switch his orders up a little, and he once ordered his underwear to be three ounces heavier than his previous order. That wasn't the only strange thing about his clothing either. No matter the weather, the Duke always wore three overcoats, all at the same time, each one sized slightly larger than the last one so that they would fit comfortably over one another, whilst also wearing a top hat and carrying around an umbrella. He rarely moved around during the day, and so he tied a lantern to his waist so he could make his way through the dark nights instead. At home, he preferred not to be spoken to directly by any of his staff, and he had letterboxes fitted in each of the doors of the house which he used to pass notes through in order to communicate. There were times when the staff of the house wouldn't see the Duke directly for months at a time, and at times they were not even aware if he was even home or not. Clearly, contact was a struggle for the Duke, and there were even rumours that he had his money routinely washed before he would touch it for himself. Not that any of this was a, a form of snobbishness or unwillingness to mix with the servant classes. He treated his staff with kindness and even went as far as to have a skating rink built in the grounds of Welbeck Abbey, which he demanded his staff use whenever he felt they needed to take a break. Building was something of a pastime for the Duke, and he spent a great deal of time and money having a maze of subterranean tunnels and rooms built below the surface of the Nottinghamshire estate, including a giant cavernous ballroom, complete with skylights in the ground above, and a vast tunnel that was wide enough for two carriages to travel through side by side. In the corner of each room, he had a toilet installed, completely open and exposed to the rest of the room. The Duke lived this strangely eccentric and secluded life at Welbeck Abbey until 1878, when he returned to Harcourt House in London, where he spent a year in bed before he passed away on 6th of December 1879. Since the Duke had no children of his own, the title of Duke passed on to his second cousin, the 22-year-old William John Arthur Charles James Cavendish Benetink who became the 6th Duke of Portland. When the 6th Duke arrived at Welbeck Abbey in the new year, following the old Duke's funeral in Kensal Green Cemetery in Kensington, London, he found a house in disrepair, completely empty of furniture, with only the west wing of the manor inhabitable at all. Along with the help of his stepmother, his mother having passed away a few days after his birth, the 6th Duke spent a great deal of time and money rebuilding Welbeck Abbey scouring through the fifth duke's collection of wigs and paintings and clearing them out and turning the estate back into something he could show off to respectable society. In time, the house became a lively social hub as the sixth duke got on with the business of schmoozing and living it up as members of his class were ought to do. He married in 1889 to Winifred Dallas York and the pair had two children, a daughter named Victoria and a son, William Arthur Henry. Once again, the grounds of the estate rang with the sounds of gunfire during shooting season and of music and tea parties throughout the summer. The Duke and Duchess of Portland lived it up carefree for 20 years. Until a letter arrived, in 1898, that threatened their whole life. As it appeared that William's claim to the title was perhaps not as clear-cut as it was first thought. On March 10th, a small article appeared in the London newspapers that may have seemed relatively innocuous at first, though its headline paved the way for the sensational narrative that would eventually unfold. An alleged bogus burial, strange story in the consistory court, Dr T. H. Tristram, Chancellor of the Diocese of London, sitting at the consistory court held at St Paul's Cathedral yesterday, heard a remarkable application for a faculty to open a grave in Highgate Cemetery for the purpose of ascertaining whether a certain body was buried in it or not. Mr. Clark, for the petitioner, Mrs. Anna Maria Druce, a widow, said that the case was one in which the supposed burial took place of Thomas Charles Druce of Baker Street and of Hendon. On December 24, 1864, it was reported that Mr. Druce had died at his private house 
and had been buried on the following day at Highgate Cemetery. The widow in the story, Anna Maria Druce, was the daughter-in-law of Thomas Charles Druce. She had met and later married Thomas's son, Walter, whilst working as the governess in the Druce household, looking after the then 15-year-old Druce daughter, Bertha. Naturally, the relationship went down about as well as a sack of bricks, and as soon as the relationship between Anna Maria and Walter was discovered, she was removed as the governess, and Walter was forced to leave home in order to continue their romance. Finally, after many years of convincing, Walter and Anna Maria were married, with the family's blessing, in December of 1872. Anna Maria was aged 24 and Walter just 20 years old. The couple went on to have five children, three daughters, Florence, Marguerite and Nina, and two sons, Sidney and Walter. Their married life was not to be all rainbows, however, and Walter Sr. sadly passed away just eight years later after suffering from typhoid. The death of her husband sent Anna Maria to the workhouses, where she was forced to pass her daughter to another family, where she worked as a servant, and she also apprenticed her two sons aboard ships, sailing their way to Australia. Nina was sent to a convent school, and Marguerite, who had been born with a disability, was the only child who remained with Anna Maria. The tragedy only continued when her first son, Walter, died at sea when his ship was wrecked. By 1898, Anna Maria was widowed, penniless, and having climbed up the social ladder, found herself back at rock bottom. In court, her story was nothing short of an extraordinary allegation, but it was about to get even more so. Not only was Anna Maria claiming that her father-in-law, Thomas Charles Druce, had not been buried in Highgate Cemetery following his death in 1864, she was also claiming that he hadn't actually died at all, and that instead his coffin had been filled with lead from the roof of his own home and the funeral carried out as a ruse. Her reason for taking the case to the Chancellor of the Diocese, Dr. T.H. Tristram, was to apply for the Druce vault to be opened and the coffin of Thomas Charles Druce exhumed in order to prove her claim that the coffin was empty. Realising how all of this would have likely sounded, Anna Maria had arrived at the court well prepared. Many of the stories reported on the case remarked on her ability to talk as if she were a lawyer herself and that she had provided enough evidence to force Tristram to give her application the time of day. Foremost was her belief that she had seen him alive after his supposed burial. Once in the street whilst driving through Maidenhead, she had seen the man she believed to be Thomas Druce with another man and when she stopped to ask him who they were, the second man explained that he was one Dr Littleton Stuart Forbes Winslow of the Sussex House Mental Asylum in Hammersmith and that the man he was with was his patient, who at this point went by the name of Dr Harmer. Later, Dr Forbes Winslow positively identified a photograph of Thomas Charles Druce as his former patient. On top of this somewhat anecdotal but fairly powerful evidence, Anna Maria also produced a death certificate that had, somewhat unusually, never been signed by any medical attendant. Following the hearing, the court concluded that Anna Maria Druce had a legitimate interest in exhuming the body of her father-in-law and as such ruled in her favour, with the event to take place two weeks later, providing there were no objections. It was quite a remarkable story and with the promise of an imminent and sensational conclusion on the very near horizon, the press jumped on it. All of this, however, was really nothing to the claims that would come out in the following days when Anna Maria gave an exclusive details of the story to the London-based Morning Leader. Thomas Charles Druce had faked his death, Anna Maria was contending, not only to conceal his identity as a mentally ill patient in Hammersmith, but also to conceal his true identity, that he was, in fact, the fifth Duke of Portland, William John Cavendish Scott Benting. Thomas Giles Druce had faked his own death, she continued, in order to shake off his second life, allowing him to return to his life in Welbeck Abbey as the Duke without distraction. It was, it's fairly safe to say, a fairly ambitious claim. If all that she had said was true, Anna Maria had a son, Sydney, who now lives in Australia, who would have been the rightful heir to the Portland estate and the title of the sixth Duke of Portland. As crazy as this whole thing sounded, somewhat amazingly, it wasn't an entirely baseless claim. Thomas Charles Druce had always been extremely secretive about his origins and no one ever knew where he had come from before he arrived in London in 1830 as a salesman in Oxford Street. 
Furthermore, there were clear holes in the records for both the Duke and Thomas Druce, and when one appeared, the other did seem to vanish. On top of that, both men did foster some rather strange and overlapping eccentricities. When Thomas Druce's eldest son, Herbert Druce, heir to the Druce business fortune, stepped in to object the exhumation request, aided in secret by the sixth Duke's solicitors, the speculation only heightened. What was now being touted as the Highgate Vault mystery, with long stories in the press, speculating who was behind the exhumation obstruction and why. In all likelihood, Herbert Druce was simply hoping to avoid any further embarrassment, after the fact that he had been born out of wedlock had been publicly outed, but there was no getting past the fact that his meddling looked bad. The whole thing was exacerbated by the fact that the courts were paused throughout the summer, leaving the press to fill the void with stories fuelled by their own imagination. One of the more prominent rumours at the time was that solicitors representing the Sixth Duke had approached Anna Maria with an offer to settle her case out of court for a sum of $60,000. This was a stupendous sum of money at the time, but a sum that Anna Maria turned away without hesitation, which strengthened her case in the eyes of the public. The idea that there were dark machinations being worked in the shadows with the rich and wealthy pulling the strings was also strengthened when the Home Office stepped in in early December and ordered a cease to any possible exhumation, which immediately led people to question how deeply the Duke was acting, and if it was the Duke who had pressured the government, then what skeletons did he have in his closet? Meanwhile, Anna Maria seemed to be enjoying the spotlight. She spoke to newspapers, held press meetings and floated the idea with her solicitors that she could potentially sell bonds in the inheritance in order to raise funds for the legal fees. Her solicitors warned her against doing such a thing and told her in no uncertain terms that they would be forced to leave the case if she were to do so. But by now that didn't stop her from doing it anyway. Her lawyers promptly left, as they had threatened, and Mrs Druce took up an office in Holborn. The bonds were issued, laying out the terms as such. Whereas the above Anna Maria Druce, who is the widow of the late Walter Druce, son of Thomas Charles Druce of the Baker Street Bazaar, otherwise known as the 5th Duke of Portland, has claimed to the estates of the late 5th Duke of Portland, on the ground that her late husband was son and heir to the late Duke. And whereas the said Anna Maria Druce is advised that her son has a good claim to the said dukedom and estates, which is shown by title deeds of property being identical, and also witnesses showing the 5th Duke of Portland and Thomas Charles Druce to be one and the same person. Provided that Anna Maria won the case, she would promise a share of the estate equal to the number of bonds purchased within 12 months of the conclusion. This method of raising funds was not entirely uncommon in the 19th century. Several high-profile cases had seen the same. Perhaps most famously is the case of the Tichborne claimant. But the papers summed up the public's attitude towards them when it stated, with no small amount of sarcasm, It will be seen from this precious document that all you have to do is take Mrs Druce's word for the fact that she has a good claim to the Portland Estates and then forward your money. Nevertheless, Anna Maria was working hard to promote her case and had employed several shady agents and solicitors to help her to do so. Ultimately though, it was all for naught until the exhumation order could be unearthed from the legal wrangle that it had become tied up in. The appeals and objections had seen the application bounced from the church courts to the civil courts and back again, leading Anna Maria to take a new angle. If she could dispute the legitimacy of the will within the civil courts by proving that Thomas Druce had not died in 1864 and therefore that the probate was not valid, she could perhaps wind her way towards an exhumation and claim on the estate that way instead. This was a complicated legal case and would take several years to reach trial. And then... Just as it hit the courts, a whole new twist in the plot developed that buried Anna Maria's claim for good. Anna Maria's case against the executor of Thomas Druce's will reached trial in December of 1901, nearly three years after she had first applied for the Druceville in Highgate Cemetery to be opened. In the three years it had taken for the trial to reach the civil courts, several key events had slowly worked to erode her case until it was little more than a public spectacle. First and foremost was the failure of the bonds that Anna Marie had put on sale back in 1898, leaving her with no funds to pay her legal fees. 
With no serious legal team behind her, Anna Maria was instead forced to build a legal case herself and present it to the court alone. Perhaps an even larger problem was the fact that any witnesses that Anna Maria was relying on had pulled out of the case, with rumours that the 6th Duke had pressured them to stand down. All of this meant that Anna Maria was entering the courtroom at 10am on the 3rd of December 1901 with no legal team and no witnesses. Her argument appeared as little more than the ramblings of a deranged elderly woman and she quickly found herself the butt of jokes, with even the judge showing little patience for the whole affair. The defence mounted a strong argument in retaliation, calling witnesses to prove that Thomas Druce had died in 1864, including several of the family staff who had given detailed descriptions of his last hours alive, with several claiming to have seen his body placed in the coffin, and others stating that they had been in the room where his body had lain in state following his death. On the second day, Anna Maria was cross-examined, where she appeared firmly unhinged, as she ranted about conspiracies and the devil. By the time the judge summarised the case, he handed the result over to the jury with little enthusiasm. Members of the jury, I do not suppose there is the slightest difficulty in your returning your verdict and making an end of a matter that ought never to have been brought into the court. The jury did their duty and duly returned the verdict that Thomas Charles Druce had died in 1864 and his will was therefore entirely valid. Despite all the spectacular stories in the press, the excitement as the will-they-won't-they they status of the exhumation hung in the balance and the fantastic amount of money and property that had been up for grabs at the initial hearings, the trial of Druce versus Young ended with a whimper, and so too did the public profile of Anna Maria, who, following the case, disappeared without as much as a single word. Her disappearance was so quick and so quiet, in fact, that for a while there was some speculation that she had been paid off or that she had been placed in an asylum but this was all rather short-lived. The real truth of the matter was actually far more interesting and would ensure that the press would still have something to write about for a long time to come. The reason for Anna Maria's silence was not simply that she had lost her civil case or that she had found herself in complete poverty, but that a new contender for the title of Duke of Portland had entered the fray and his claim simply blew any that Anna Maria may have had firmly out of the water. Since the original hearing, Back in 1898, it had become common knowledge that Thomas Charles Druce had had three children born out of wedlock, and he had not married his wife Annie May until 1851, many years after the two had met. The truth of all of this was that Thomas Charles Druce had been married before, 35 years before, in 1816, when he had met and married a woman named Elizabeth Crickmer. The marriage had been a low-key affair, with only Elizabeth's brother and sister attending along with two of their friends. Elizabeth had apparently been from a fairly well-moneyed family and herself had been worth £7,000. She had met Thomas, who at the time had been working as a linen draper whilst she had been attending a boarding school, which she promptly ran away from when the two alighted in order to get married. The pair had settled down in Bury St Edmunds and had four children together, Henry Thomas, Charles, George and Francis Elizabeth, before Elizabeth found out to her detriment that Thomas was something of a womaniser. Sometime in the early 1820s, Thomas just simply disappeared, leaving Elizabeth alone with her children. Elizabeth quickly descended into poverty, moving the whole family to London in the 1830s, where she caught up with Thomas, now working at the Baker Street Bazaar, who finally agreed to support his children, though only to the tune of 12 shillings per week. By now their eldest son, Henry Thomas, had died at sea, but Thomas did use his connections to get his two remaining sons, Charles and George, jobs within London and arranged to send Francis Elizabeth to a boarding school. All of this went on to explain why he had waited to marry until 1851 to marry Annie May, because that was the year that Elizabeth Crickmer had died, following her turn towards alcohol, which killed her at the age of 56. Following his own death in 1864, George Crickmer, Thomas's third son, was the only one of the Crickmer children to receive anything in his will, where he was left £1,000 in an additional document that was separate from the main will. By that point, George Crickmer had moved to Australia in search of his fortune during the gold rush. Whilst there, he'd met a woman named Mary Hollenby, settled down, and the two had had a child, which they also named George. 
The family had moved to Melbourne when they had received their £1,000 inheritance and George had set up a vegetable market business, though it eventually failed. With little other options, he sent his son, George Jr., out to apprentice. But George Jr. was not so keen, so instead he ran off into the bush to live as something of a wanderer, bouncing from odd jobs in frontier farms until he finally returned to the city in his 30s. It was here, in Melbourne, that he first heard the story of Anna Maria. His younger brother, Charles, had read the story of Anna Maria's fight for the exhumation of Thomas Druce in a newspaper and putting the pieces together quickly informed George that he was, since the death of their father, the rightful heir to the title of Duke of Portland, completely undermining Anna Maria's case by some margin. George acted right away, sending a representative to the Young versus Druce trial in 1901, happy with the result that Anna Maria had not managed to stake any claim into his own inheritance. Now, it was time for him to mount his own legal battle. Taking a leaf out of Anna Maria's book, George Hollenby began his legal battle by enlisting the aid of Thomas Coburn to act as his solicitor, and then raising funds around the Melbourne business class by selling bonds. Just like Anna Maria, he also used the fact that he had received a £50,000 settlement offer from the Sixth Duke's solicitors to rustle up interest. When they had enough for their boat fares to England, the two shipped over and set up a business, G.H. Druce Limited, and placed 10,000 shares for sale at £1 each and 20,000 shares at one shilling. Before long, the company had managed to raise over £11,000 and had shareholders who were themselves very prominent people indeed. With funding in the bag, the next step was to build a legitimate case for the title, and they began by hiring another solicitor, Edmund Kimber, and the journalist, Kenneth Henderson, the editor of The Idler, in order to have the pair collect evidence. Adverts were placed in newspapers around the world seeking witnesses who could corroborate any of their story that Thomas Druce was still alive and that he was the secret alias of the Fifth Duke. They set up a petition to have Highgate Vault opened and collected hundreds of signatures and finally worked incessantly to hype the story, aiming to maintain their financial support for the long term. They also decided on what their actual goals were in the claim. There were... Technically, at this point, two separate estates that they could claim as heir to the title. There was the Nottinghamshire estate of Welbeck Abbey, which currently belonged to the Sixth Duke. And then there was the second London estate, that consisted of a huge and vastly expensive portion of Marylebone in central London, that currently belonged to the Eighth Baron, Howard de Walden, a descendant of the Fifth Duke's sister. The Hollenby party decided to go after the de Walden London estate first, hoping that if that was successful, that they could then attack the Sixth Duke for Welbeck Abbey. It was all seeming like a very slick affair, but George Hollenby had a couple of issues. Firstly, the people that George Hollenby was surrounding himself with were all fairly shady. In itself, this was fine, but it did give his actions something of a sour note that the press were happy to bring to attention. Secondly, and definitely the bigger problem of the two, was that George Hollenby was technically not the true heir to the title, and he knew it. Back in Australia, George Hollenby had a relative, Charles Edgar, who happened to be the grandson of George Crickmer's elder brother, Charles, making him the direct descendant and heir apparent. It was a fact that the Hollenby party had conveniently left out of the paperwork when they were scouting around looking for investors. When the news finally broke, it was a nightmare for George, who saw his investors, who, seeing their money appear to vanish down the drain overnight, were infuriated by the dishonesty. George Hollenby acted quickly by countering that Charles Edgar's father had actually been an illegitimate child between Thomas Druce and, of all people, Elizabeth Crickmer's sister, and he used the fact that his father, George Senior, had been the only one of Thomas and Elizabeth's sons to have received any money in Thomas Druce's will as evidence to back up his claim. Meanwhile, he sent a dispatch to Charles Edgar in Australia and struck a deal that Charles Edgar would not make a competing claim, but would, in turn, gain an equal share of the claim should George win. In the end, the existence of another family member just seemed to add to all the scandal, intrigue and excitement, and it eventually went some way to calming the investors, who saw their money back on track. After several years, George Hollenby finally had his case ready to go to trial in the autumn of 1907. The pre-trial opened on Friday the 25th of October at the Marylebone Police Court with a view to discovering whether or not the case had any legs to take it to a full trial, 
with Herbert Drews standing trial for perjury for having lied on oath during the 1898 trial where he claimed that Thomas Drews had died in 1864. For the prosecution, George Hollenby's team had managed to muster three key witnesses, all with powerful evidence that not only had Thomas Drews not died in 1864, but that he had been living a second life as the fifth Duke. First up was Robert Caldwell, a physician who told a story that he had treated the fifth Duke for his skin condition personally for a number of years beginning in 1864. He told the court that he had met the Duke in the Baker Street Bazaar and had on several occasions seen him wear fake beards to disguise himself as Thomas Druce and that the Duke had even gone so far as telling him that he wished to kill off his second identity as Thomas Druce. Following his fake death, Caldwell said that he personally filled the empty coffin with lead whilst organising Thomas Druce's funeral to the Duke's wishes. Following the funeral, Caldwell moved to New York and never heard from the Duke again, only discovering the story of George Hollenby's claim in the New York world in February of that year, which prompted him to contact the Hollenby party and agreed to come to England as a witness. The second key witness was a woman named Mary Robinson. Mary claimed to be the daughter of a tobacco plantation owner in Virginia, America, though she had been sent to England to grow up in the southern village of Tunbridge Wells to live with her aunt after the breakout of the Civil War. Whilst in England, she met Thomas Charles Druce several times, where he told her personally that he lived on a large estate in Nottingham. Later, when she returned to America, she said she met the author, Charles Dickens, in Boston, who told her that he also knew Thomas Druce and that he was secretly the fifth Duke of Portland. If this story wasn't spectacular enough already, Mary Robinson went on to say that, on Dickens's recommendation, she returned to England to work as the Duke's private secretary, living nearby Welbeck Abbey and acting as the letter writer for the Duke under the pseudonym of Madame Two Swords. Throughout her time working for the Duke, she claimed she only ever called him by the name of Thomas Druce. The third and final key witness was an elderly lady in her 70s named Margaret Jane Louisa Hamilton, who told the court that she had been born in Rome and her father had been a close friend of the fifth duke, who was, in fact, her godfather. She went on that the duke had told her on several occasions that he was Thomas Druce, that she had seen him in disguise in the Baker Street Bazaar and that her father had told her all about Thomas Druce's mock funeral. Aside from these three witnesses, who together weaved a very powerful argument for George Hollenby's claim, the prosecution also had a diary written by Mary Robinson and argued on the anecdotal evidence that the Duke and Thomas Druce had shared several very unique quirks, including their skin conditions, that they were similar heights, had similar habits, both abstained from smoking and rarely drank, and that records seemed to coincide with disappearance and appearance of both parties. It was all a very convincing case, at least on the surface and until the cross-examinations began. Immediately, the defence brought up the fact that Robert Caldwell had been known in America to assign false affidavits for financial gain, trying to fleece money from dead people's inheritance funds. The questions continued and the defence suggested that when Caldwell had said he had been treating the Duke for his skin condition, he had actually been in Ireland working as a clerk in a position that he had been sacked from for embezzling money. Somewhat weakly at this point, Caldwell responded that that had actually been his brother, and that due to neither of them liking their given names, they had actually swapped them, which had caused all the confusion, of course. It was all just a simple case of mistaken identity, he promised. Somewhat embarrassingly, the defence then called a witness that positively identified him as the disgraced clerk. The dismantling of Mary Robinson came next. The first step was easy enough. The defence claimed that, according to his biography, Dickens had actually been in Liverpool when Mary had said that she had met him in Boston. When she was pushed on her story, she said she felt unwell and appeared faint. The court was adjourned in order to give her a short break, but upon her return to the dock, she was shown letters written by the Duke, which she failed to identify as such, which was a rather strange outcome for a personal secretary that claimed to have passed letters from the Duke for several years. When the defence rounded upon Margaret Jane Louisa Hamilton, the judge was already tiring of the spectacle. The defence contested her claim that she had been born the daughter of an aristocrat in Rome by displaying her birth record that clearly stated otherwise. Margaret hit back, saying that she had been brought up by different parents. The defence also mounted an argument that the Duke of Portland 
had been unable to father children following an accident earlier in his youth, whilst Thomas Charles Druce clearly had no problem fathering several. The prosecution, perhaps realising that their case was heavily on the rocks, were forced to disavow their key witnesses. And then, just as the whole thing seemed to be nearing its conclusion, the trial was adjourned, and not for any small reason either. Finally, after over ten years of back-and-forth legal battles, hearings and red tape, Herbert Druce had finally agreed to give permission for the Druce Vault to be opened in Highgate Cemetery, with the Sixth Duke offering to pay all of the costs of the exercise. After so many years of hyping up the Druce Vault mystery, it seemed that with the opening of the vault, the press were finally getting their conclusion, or at least they were getting the big reveal to their story. The problem was, exhumation of a family vault was not something that the press were generally invited to. Outside of a small delegation of designated press officers, the majority of journalists found themselves camped outside the cemetery gates on a cold December morning, waiting for George Hollenby to arrive. Police had been placed on the gates of the cemetery to ensure that no journalists tried to break in and patrols were making their way around the perimeter, just to be sure. The vault itself had been covered by a large shed, complete with electric lighting, to allow the police, the medical team and the labourers who had been on the site since 5am to work in relative privacy. George Hollenby arrived at 8am, but after attempting to gain access to the site, was turned away, much to his chagrin, to wait outside the gates like every other member of the general public, who had been steadily forming a large crowd since the morning had broke. Finally, at 10.20am, the medical team arrive, consisting of Dr Augustus Joseph Pepper, a surgeon, and pathologist Sir Thomas Stevenson, a forensic expert. The two made their way to the shed, where they disappeared inside, to survey the operation and inspect the family coffins as they were pulled from the vault. Inside the shed, the electric lights hummed and cast their dim light onto the cold, clammy ground. The workmen now ascended. Two planks were laid across the tomb and a photographic camera brought in position to take a picture of the three caskets as they lay, dust and grime included. An hour and a half had now elapsed since operations began. Photographers act with great deliberation, but at last they were ready, and a few flashlights accomplished their business. The casket proved to be an old-fashioned coffin, covered with cloth and studded panel-style with brass nails. One of its six heavy brass handles had come off, but otherwise, all that was amiss was some fraying of the cloth and a little waste on the edge of the lid. The nameplate having been washed, the inscription became visible. Thomas Charles Druce Esquire died 28th December 1864 in his 71st year. Above and also below the inscription was a brass cross. The workman next cut through the lead all around the outer edge of its upper surface. This was slightly raised, the lid was removed bringing away with it the top of the innermost wooden shell, and there was displayed a shrouded human figure, which proved to be that of an aged and bearded man. After ten years of speculation, the contents of the coffin of Thomas Charles Druce were finally known, and it contained nothing more nor nothing less than the body of the man himself. To say it was a hiccup in the case for George Hollenby was a colossal understatement. A week later, and everyone was back in court, where the medical evidence was read out and the doctors positively identified the body of Thomas Struce. The vault had not been tampered with and neither the grave nor the coffin had been touched since the original burial in 1864, they stated. With the announcement from Dr Pepper that he was, without a shadow of doubt, that the body inside was that of Thomas Struce, the prosecution was officially withdrawn and the trial put to an abrupt end. With some flourish, the magistrate summarised for the whole room. Gentlemen, this inquiry may have taken some time, but I do not think any impartial person will say that the time has been wasted. The bubble which has floated so long and so mischievously out of reach has been effectually pricked at last. No one can now doubt that Thomas Charles Druce existed in fact, that he died in his own home in the midst of his family and that he was buried in due course in the family vault in the cemetery in Highgate. His existence stand out as clear, as distinct, as undeniable as that of any human being that ever lived. How the myth ever arose that confused Thomas Charles Druce and the 5th Duke of Portland as the same personality, it would be idle to speculate. Sufficient to say 
that this case is an illustration of the love of the marvellous which is so deeply ingrained in human nature and is likely to be remembered in legal annals as affording one more striking proof of the unfathomable depths of human credulity. The case is dismissed. With the dramatic collapse of the Hollenby trial, the tides quickly changed against the prosecutors. Despite George Hollenby's solicitor, Thomas Coburn, putting on a brave face for the press and even suggesting that they now needed to raise more money for future litigation attempts, the narrative had switched dramatically overnight. It wasn't just the press and public opinion that had turned against the prosecutors either. In the background, Inspector Walter Dew of Scotland Yard was now taking it upon himself to chase down the three key witnesses on their own perjury charges. On the evening of the 14th of December, eight days after the trial's closing, he visited the chief prosecutor at his home in South Kensington in order to apply for a warrant for their arrest, which was duly granted the very next morning. Unfortunately, despite the expedited warrant, it was already too late to arrest Caldwell, who had taken a boat from Southampton to New York three days earlier. The inspector contacted the New York police and asked them to seize Caldwell upon his arrival. Whilst waiting for his arrival in the States, the inspector switched his attention towards Mary Robinson, who was still being followed by the 6th Duke's private investigators. On the 17th of January, he made his way to Mary's rented flat in Lavender Hill, London, and arrested her for perjury. A week later, Caldwell stepped off the boat in New York and was duly arrested. However, much to Inspector Dew's frustration, was bailed for a tidy sum of $5,000 on account of his ill health. A month later, his daughter had filed a petition for her father to be regarded as a lunatic, a diagnosis that was independently confirmed by two doctors who promptly locked him up in the Manhattan Hospital for the Insane, effectively out of reach of the British justice system. What made matters even worse for Dew was the extended diagnosis that confirmed that Caldwell had been suffering from paranoia and delusions for at least the past year, making any charge of perjury look extremely unlikely and forcing the inspector to back down and write the whole thing off as a loss. Meanwhile, the inspector had been busy digging into Mary Robinson's past. As just about everyone expected, it turned out that she had not been the daughter of a Virginia tobacco plantation owner after all. Rather, her father had been a London policeman. Mary Robinson, real name Mary Ann Webb, was, it turned out, a widow with a history of fraudulent insurance claims after she burnt down her house when she lived in New Zealand and claimed for thousands of pounds of expensive furniture and belongings. There was evidence that she had actually spent some time living around Wellback Abbey, more than Caldwell at least, which is where her local dialect and knowledge had come from that had given some of her arguments such credence. Far from being the private secretary of the Duke, however, she had been married to a shepherd who had worked on the estate for a very short time. Whilst the inspector was digging into Mary's history, he received a telegram from Holloway Prison. Apparently, Mary was ready to talk and was asking to speak to the inspector personally. When Inspector Dew arrived at Holloway Prison, it was immediately apparent that incarceration had been hard on Mary. She was pale and had clearly lost a fair amount of weight. Importantly for the inspector, though, she was also ready to confess. As it turned out, she had been living in New Zealand with her daughter when she had read an advertisement placed in the newspaper by the Hollenby team seeking out people who had any information on the 5th Duke of Portland. Having lived nearby the estate, Mary contacted the advertisers and within weeks was being visited by two men, one of which she was sure had been George Hollenby's brother, Charles. The two men told her that if she could write down everything she remembered from her time at Welbeck Abbey and maybe flower it up some, making it sound a whole lot more interesting, she would be paid £4,000 for her troubles. With her own memories of the area and with the case taking up so much of the print in all the newspapers, writing an account that sounded factual enough was a fairly easy task and Mary set about writing a highly romanticised diary of her fictionalised time spent working for the Duke at Welbeck Abbey. The Hollenby Group, bought her two tickets aboard a ship to England, one for herself and one for her daughter, and the two women arrived in early 1908, just in time to get prepared for the impending trial. The whole time that she was in England, Kimber and Coburn, the Hollenby Party's solicitors and investigators, strung Mary along, reminding her that she would get £4,000 provided she just stick to her story. All the time, they were using her diary to raise funds from investors. Whilst they did pay her rent on the London flat, the payments were frequently late 
and where Mary began having suspicions that perhaps the Hollenby party were not quite as above board as she had initially thought. Despite knowingly forging evidence for them in the first place, she decided to speak to her own solicitors in order to claim back possession of her diary. As it turned out, when it was stolen shortly after, as she had told the court, it was not the sixth Duke's investigators who had snatched it away, which she had expected, but it was actually Coburn and Kimber themselves. Aside from everything else, Mary maintained that she did really know Charles Dickens. The final witness, the elderly Margaret Jane Louisa Hamilton. All that was left for Jew to do now was investigate the final witness, the elderly Margaret Jane Louisa Hamilton. Digging into her past, the inspector uncovered that she had been born in Westmoreland in the north of England, fairly far away from Rome. Growing up, her family had garnered something of a reputation for being a little on the unbalanced side. Her uncle, affectionately known around town as Crazy Ned, was one example, and her sister, who had spent a large amount of her life in an asylum from a young age, was another. Margaret herself was always thought of as somewhat eccentric. As a young adult, she took up with a ship's captain and had two children. Unfortunately, the captain was already married with his own family. Not to be outdone, Margaret had a fling for herself with a travelling scissor grinder that ended up in a third pregnancy and when the captain discovered the infidelity, he promptly up and left, leaving Margaret alone with three children. Margaret wound up wandering around, drifting between housekeeping jobs before she eventually washed up in London with her daughter turning to prostitution and marrying one of her regular clients. Later, her daughter's husband had contacted Anna Maria, who had been compiling her own case in 1898, after he had heard Margaret mention that her father had known the fifth duke. When Anna Maria's solicitors contacted Margaret, they promised her £300 as she would stand as a witness in the original hearing. Eight years later, it was a journalist for the Lloyd's Weekly newspaper who tracked her down, having written her story originally and introduced her to the Hollenby party. Well aware that it would be likely that Margaret would secure a diagnosis of lunacy and hysteria, Inspector Jew moved on to the puppet masters behind it all, the Hollenby party themselves. By now, it was startlingly clear that Kimber and Coburn had been manipulating and fabricating evidence, paying off witnesses and stealing evidence to boot. Unfortunately for Jew, the only evidence he had to prove it was all anecdotal, and worse, all of the testimonies were coming from people that were already charged with perjury, making them far from perfect witnesses. There were other problems too. If Jew took the whole group down, it would be exposed that dozens of prominent people had bought shares in the Hollenby companies, including the ex-Scotland Yard Chief Inspector John Conquest, who had even helped the Hollenby party build their case for trial. Worse still, it appeared to Jew that Conquest had obtained some of the Duke's old clothing, which the Hollenby party were planning to pass off as some of George's old family heirlooms, via nefarious means, having met and lied to an old valet from Welbeck Abbey. A month later, in April of 1908, the perjury trials went ahead. Margaret Hamilton was found guilty, but given a lenient sentence of 18 months in prison due to her age. Mary Robinson pleaded guilty but was still handed down a sentence of four years of hard labour. Caldwell, still locked up in an asylum in New York, avoided any prosecution. With some amount of vindication, Jew somewhat apprehensively began moving against the men behind it all. But then, just as he began circling his prey, the entire case was thrown out by order of the Director of Public Prosecutions. The Six Duke's legal team, who had been assisting Jew, appealed to the Home Office but it was all for nothing. The case had been entirely shut down. Naturally, Jew suspected interference from John Conquest or some other wealthy and powerful party who stood to be well embarrassed by any trial, but there was nothing he could do anymore. Following the perjury trials, the long, drawn-out saga of the Drew's Fault mystery finally drew to its inevitable close. Quickly, the mentions in the press shrank to nothing and the affair passed off into legal history. It made a series of small comebacks, but only as people associated with the case passed away, like when Caldwell finally escaped his lunatic asylum following his death in 1911, with Anna Maria, the original prosecutor for the Druce affair, following three years later in 1914. Most of the other major players fled England, heading for Australia or America. George Hollenby, 
did threaten to bring back the case once or twice, but nothing ever came of it. He passed away in Oakland, America, in 1942, drawing the Druce mystery to its ultimate conclusion. So that was the tale of the Druce Portland affair, the Duke that never was. And we'll talk a little bit about some of the weird conspiracies and other nonsense after these short advert breaks. Today's episode is sponsored by Seeker's Notes. Seeker's Notes is a cut above traditional hidden object games. It's a premium hobby for those who enjoy the chase of the hunt and the art of discovery. Dive into the heart of a spellbound story where you are called to the post-Victorian enigmatic city of Darkwood as the chosen one to decipher its ancient curse. So primarily, Seeker's Notes is one of those hidden object games and I used to play these with my mum all the time and she still plays them and I still play them as a guilty secret, I'll be honest. Uh, but we used to play this together all the time and it, it, I playing Seeker's Notes uh, to prepare myself for this ad, I, I, it brought back like good memories. First of all, the setting is really cool. It's like, it's, like it says post, they call it post-Victorian, but I, I, I felt like it had this kind of slightly um like poirot-esque kind of vibe to it uh, and I, I obviously i really like that that that's that's my bag uh but also beyond the hidden object side of it it has mini games as well which are usually little puzzles to solve and little like sort of puzzle mini games which are really nice just to just throw in there basically and, and break things up um and they also have things like um, sort of twists on the hidden object side of the game as well. If you're not sure what a hidden object game is, by the way, because I've sort of just gone into that, it's basically a game where you're presented with a screen and you've got to collect a list of objects. So you have to, a bit like Where's Wally, you know, you've got to look around the screen and find the, the objects it's, it's asking for. Uh, it'll be like things like an umbrella or a boot or an amulet, things like this. And the, the, it'll be like a scene with lots of objects in it. So you've got to try and find the ones you want. That's basically a hidden object game. It's like I say, it's available on your tablet or your phone. It's completely free. There's no adverts to pop up every five seconds like in so many free-to-play games these days. And uh, you don't even need Wi-Fi to play it, which is a, a big bonus. You know, um, you can play it completely disconnected, which is really great. Uh, there's already 40 million fans playing the game. So, you know, it's, it's, it's not going anywhere soon. It's well-supported. Yeah, check out Seeker's Notes. Whenever you need a break from your day, you need to try Seeker's Notes. If you're listening to this podcast, then chances are good you are a fan of The Strange, Dark, and Mysterious. And if that's true, then you're in luck. Because, once again, Mr. Ballin' Podcast, Strange, Dark, and Mysterious Stories is available everywhere you get your podcasts. Each week on the Mr. Ballin' Podcast, you'll hear new stories about inexplicable encounters, shocking disappearances, true crime cases, and everything in between like our recent episode titled White Dust. After a middle-aged couple fail to answer their daughter's messages and calls, the daughter drives the few hours to her parents' house to check on them, but after arriving and seeing both her parents' cars in the driveway, the daughter gets an uneasy feeling and just can't stomach going inside. To hear the rest of that story and hear hundreds more stories like it, follow Mr. Ballin Podcast on Amazon Music or wherever you get your podcasts. Prime members can listen early and ad-free on Amazon Music. So yes, that was the story of the Duke of Portland and Thomas Druce. What a story. And it's a, I, there's a lot going on. So I should mention right from the start that there is a lot to this story that I didn't fit in just simply because it was over such a long period. And, uh, you know, this case went to trial I think, or or at least was in the courts at least uh, 14 or 15 times over the years. So if I'd have followed every single case, it, it, it would have just been hours long and been, I think, quite boring. So, um, you know, there are there is a lot more to this case to look into if you found it interesting. Uh, there is a book out um, that focuses just on this case by Pew Marie Well, uh, and she wrote a book called uh, The Dead Duke, His Secret Wife and the Missing Corpse. And I actually really liked the book. Um, I thought it was a really well-paced book and a really good read. Uh, it, 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 like uh, the story that I've just told, it, it it's obviously more detailed because it's a whole book, but it still breezes over quite a lot. But it, it keeps a good pace and it's really easy to read. Um, and it goes a bit more into some of the 
sort of smaller conspiracies and smaller kind of bits and bobs of the case. Um, what I thought was quite interesting is that she, um, in the sort of postscript section, she did a bit of research into um, the Duke, into the fifth Duke, and uh, found that um, despite the fact that the in court they used it as fairly pivotal evidence that he couldn't have children because of, of a hernia of his groin or something like this. Um, and she discovered that um, he actually probably did father uh, three children, uh, a daughter and two sons that were all, I think, sort of illegitimate and um, with like servants uh, for, for the estate. And so the children were like basically given away to families that lived around the estate. And that this was probably the larger conspiracy behind a lot of it, that he was, it was all trying to like, you know, because the Duke did offer like huge settlements, like £50,000 and £60,000. I mean, that's a lot of money now. But if you go back to like 1898 and 1907, these were just ginormous sums of money. If Anna Maria had taken that £60,000, I mean, that, it's like generational wealth that that was a it's a ginormous sum of money so she should have just taken that but you know obviously the duke was trying to do something there most people either thought that it was like he was covering up something really dark or he was just trying to just get it out of the way he just didn't want any embarrassment and say the author uh marie Hugh marie eatwell her kind of uh, evidence that she dug up in her during her research she believes that it was the Duke trying to cover up and conceal um, illegitimate children. Uh, that, that she found out that you know the reasons, the medical reasons that uh, were given for him to not have children actually probably wouldn't have stopped him fathering children. So that's her sort of thing, and and I think that's that's a pretty good. Um, I think that's a pretty good uh, theory. What I was surprised of myself is that the conspiracy sort of ended there um because you know i I think that if you were a believer in you know the the druce and the fifth duke being the same person i think there's some room to maneuver here um you know obviously um i i don't necessarily believe it but there was none of the hollenby party um in the shed when the exhumation happened so we just took the word of all the doctors, which is fine because they were independent doctors and whatnot. And, you know, they stood up on oath in a court and gave medical evidence. But we already saw in this story people willing to uh, commit perjury. And we also saw in this story the Duke willing to pay off a lot of money into settlements and pressuring witnesses. So, you know, I think that there are, um, there is room for, sort of manoeuvre to say that, you know, how do we know it was really Thomas Drews in the coffin? Now, I, I have seen the photos that they took and they're not good. They're obviously, as you expect, of the time. But what I would say is they're not clear who the person is either. Um, you know, uh, the photos that I saw didn't remove the uh, handkerchief from his face even. I assume they did because they mentioned that he was bearded, but the photos didn't show that. Um so, you know, I, I don't really, this is not a, a theory that I'm necessarily subscribing to, but I think if you were subscribing to that conspiracy, I think it's somewhat open. Um, you know, personally, I think that Pumarie, well, the, the author of the book is is right. I think that the uh, Dukes were trying to disguise their illegitimate children. And I think that there were also further conspiracies as well. I think... I do think that a lot of people had bought into uh, the Hollenby party's um, businesses and I think they would have been showed up as quite embarrassed if they if it had all come about like how much they'd basically funded this um, bunch of perjurers. The, the, and there were some big people involved with that and they got quite deeply involved as well. The, the investors had got quite deeply involved. One of which, as I mentioned, was the uh, ex-Chief uh, Inspector of Scotland Yard. Uh, he um, basically uh, stole a bunch of clothes uh, from an old valet. And uh, given that he helped build the case, should have known that that was 
well, he did know that he was manipulating evidence. So, um, you know, that would have been fairly embarrassing. Um, so, uh, you know, I do think there were sort of powers that be behind things that were um, getting in the way, but I don't think they were too, um, because the Duke was really uh, Thomas Drews. But that it is a very compelling uh, conspiracy, but like like all conspiracies, really, it's compelling on the outside until you look into it, and then it sort of quickly falls apart. Um, you know, that, you know that's what makes a great conspiracy, isn't it? The fact that it is compelling at first glance, um, and everything does seem to fit. And then, but then, you know, obviously, you start looking at the evidence, and it they always just fall apart. And this is precisely what happens here, I think. Um, but it is nevertheless uh, quite a compelling argument at first when you see that you know records of one disappeared whilst records of another appeared and things like that. You know. Um, I did find that quite interesting. Um, yeah, just as an aside, I thought that the magistrate's summary to the case was really one of the most beautiful speeches by a, a judge or a magistrate that I've read in my time in dark histories. So I, I really loved uh, his closing statement where he dismissed the case and uh, said, you know, um, sufficient to say that this case is an illustration of the love of the marvellous, which is so deeply ingrained in human nature. And it's likely to be remembered in legal annals as affording one more striking proof of the unfathomable depths of human credulity. I, I, it's, I mean, what a way of words, man. To be able to just, like... I don't know if he'd written that speech down, like, because obviously the case was probably going one way and he, I assume he had plenty of time on his hands to have written that speech down. I don't know if he wrote it down or if he just... or just spoke, you know, uh, freely off the top of his head and that came out. But what a beautiful uh, sort of s- sentence that is. I, I, I don't know... For me, it just struck me as a very beautiful uh, collection of words. Uh, but anyway, enough of that because I'm getting off topic. So I will end this episode here. Thank you very much for listening. If you would like to contact me, you can do so. The email is contact at darkhistories.com. If you would uh, like to get in touch with any other way, I am on social media and you can find me there. Uh, some messages there, Dark Histories. Uh, all the links to everything is in the show notes and on the website, which is darkhistories.com. Uh, you can support if you would like. I've got a patron. Uh, there are many other ways to support as well. All that stuff is on the uh, website. You can also leave reviews, things like that. It doesn't always have to be financial support that I'm asking for here. So anyway, thank you very, very much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back again in two weeks. So until then, take care. Sleep tight.